I would say number one on the list, especially sort of midterm to long-term, is transmission. I am a firm believer that distributed generation and various distributed resources can play a, a really material role in, uh, in driving the clean energy transition. And I think there are a variety of reasons having to do with the creation of the grid of the future a highly reliable, resilient, and, and more efficient grid. And distributed resources are gonna play a key role in that. But I am not a believer, as some are, that either distributed resources or utility-scale resources are the answer to driving the clean energy transition. It's going to be a mix of both, and I don't see anything changing the fact that by far the lowest cost way to deliver clean energy to consumers is through utility-scale applications. So utility-scale wind farms, utility-scale solar parks. And this is Scaling Clean the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, on Scaling Clean, we typically interview CEOs, investors, and external advisors to companies. Today, we're interviewing somebody who has not only been a CEO, he's also advised other CEOs on marketing and public affairs, something he continues to do for his present employer, EDP Renewables. And Tom Stars is our precedent-setting guest for a reason. While he's done a lot of things in a career spanning 21 years in five different companies, Tom is, by my reckoning, the longest tenured and most experienced clean tech government affairs and communications lead in America. And as the accelerating clean energy transition meets growing pushback from the fossil fuel lobby, the future of success of our sectors is not certain. Clean economy companies are often disrupting powerful incumbents with decades of experience in weaponizing government influence and propaganda against market threats for newcomers like us. A year after the IRA's passage, it felt like a good time to bring Tom on for his institutional knowledge and his seasoned perspective. I think you're going to enjoy and benefit from his wisdom. Whether or not you work in government affairs, you need Tom's wisdom to make sure your company moves forward. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's good to be here. All right. Can you start by summarizing for our listeners your journey in cleantech? Because I find it a very impressive one, and it's a very rich one, and I think your summary is going to benefit people f- to help them understand your perspective. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to do that. So I'm one of those lucky people who found their professional passion early. I was in, uh, I was in college uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and got fairly radicalized on environmental issues generally and was at the same time, have always been a very pragmatic person and was looking for solutions to the problems that I was identifying, especially in the energy sector. Took classes, some of the very earliest classes available in this country on energy in general, energy in society, renewable energy, solar and wind power, and so on. Ended up writing an undergraduate thesis on wind energy and the role of policy in driving the early adoption of wind energy in California, where I went to college. 
and fell in love with it. And long story short is I've been doing it ever since. I went to grad school and law school at uh, UC Berkeley. The grad school was a program focused on energy and resource uh, issues called the Energy and Resources Group. Um, the law school connection is pretty obvious. And, uh, and since then, I've had a career path that's been almost exclusively in the clean energy space. And I think the common thread in all of my work is that I've always been a fan of the uh, opportunities that new technologies bring. And I became convinced early on, in fact, all the way back to that original undergraduate thesis, that policy can, can and does play a tremendous role in either encouraging the adoption of new technologies or stifling the adoption of new technologies. And I wanted to be the guy whose work played a role in enabling those technologies. I've had friends over the years who are, who are in engineering and physics and who, you know, whose contributions have been huge in the sector by you know, figuring out how to squeeze an extra you know, 0.5% conversion efficiency out of a solar cell uh, or improving the performance of, of wind turbine blade design. But my contribution, I realized pretty early on, was um, to recognize the role of policy and politics in helping to really drive the adoption of these technologies and, and enable the clean energy transition. I'm going to declare right now that I think you can consider yourself successful in that life mission, but I'm going to draw on that experience by asking you to, uh, to, I want you to tell me the three biggest changes in the landscape that these sectors face, kind of when you started and now. What are those changes and why do they make your list as the top three? Mm -hmm. So... The biggest and most important is the basic economics of these technologies. And when I started working in this space, solar, uh, focus on solar, but I'm happy to talk about wind and other technologies as well, but solar in particular, I think, uh, was probably literally the most expensive way to generate electricity. And Early on, I saw its potential as a clean uh, generating source and as one that could potentially scale in terms of volume manufacturing, because it's basically a semiconductor technology and we all know about Moore's law and semiconductors. And it's, I was also intrigued by the fact that it was completely um, modular. So, you know, you can use it at the milliwatt level to power your calculator, or you can use it at the gigawatt level to power the country. And there was nothing inherent in the technology that would keep it from being used for all of those things. So I saw it as, as uh, potentially the most promising uh, technology and the one having the most potential. Now that said, by the way, Mike, my start was in wind energy, as I mentioned earlier. So, you know, a lot of the things I'm saying, I tend to focus a little more on solar because the path has been sort of even more dramatic. But, uh, but a lot of the same things apply to wind uh, as well. So, to your question, I think that the biggest thing that I've, the biggest change I've seen in my career has been the 
capture of the economies of scale in solar manufacturing in particular that have enabled uh, you know, truly radical uh, reductions in the cost of manufacturing. And I'll give you one example of that. When I was working at Shot Solar in the early 2000s, it was the typical crystalline PV manufacturing plant was at a scale of about 10 megawatts. And I remember when the announcement was made of the world's first gigawatt scale PV manufacturing plant. And now, as you know, Mike, it's routine to see manufacturing PV manufacturing facilities that are at a scale of you know multiple gigawatts. And in fact, uh, just yesterday, my friends and former colleagues at Maxion Solar announced that they're building a three gigawatt manufacturing plant in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So that's uh, so that's pretty representative of the kind of progress in scale uh, manufacturing that we've seen now. You may ask yourself, you know, okay, well, what does policy have to do with that? You're talking about increased economies of scale, but the simple fact is that we could only achieve those economies of scale of manufacturing because we were we were creating incentives for the deployment of the technology that could justify those investments in manufacturing. And that's where my focus, professionally speaking, is, has always been. You know, my view was uh, I trusted the the technical experts, the you know, physicists and engineers and others to do their part in terms of being able to scale the technology. But we needed to create that, you know, the classic demand pull to justify in those investments in those manufacturing plants. So uh, that was, that's always been my focus was finding ways to enable the market. And, uh, and that consisted really of two things. And these are the two important elements in this overall economic success. The first is, quite simply and bluntly, subsidies. The technology was too expensive to compete with traditional sources of electricity. And so we needed to find ways to basically provide price support for the technology in the early days. And the second, which was in its own way even more challenging, was overcoming the institutional barriers that prevented, or at least severely discouraged the adoption of the technologies. And I can speak more broadly about this if you want, but a great example of that, that was something that I focused on in, in my earlier years in this field, in the specifically in sort of mid nineties and through the rest of that decade, was the work I did um, encouraging the adoption of net energy metering, NEM, for distributed solar applications around the country. I worked with a, a great group of people, including some people who, would, who are, are, are legends in the solar industry, like Howard Wenger, my, my good friend, but also longstanding colleague in this space, <clears throat> um, and others in the field to, uh, to encourage the adoption of the first sort of modern net energy metering bill in California in the mid 1990s. And then by a combination of good fortune and hard work, I ended up uh, being in a position where as an independent renewable energy consultant, I could, I found a number of clients who were willing to fund uh, my essentially going on a, on a roadshow uh, all around the country and encouraging the adoption of similar laws uh, around the country. So 
Over the next five years, I was in over 40 of the U.S. states. And in most wow. of those states, we ultimately succeeded in getting them to adopt uh, net energy metering. Now, why was that important? You know, most people think of net metering as a economic incentive because you're essentially allowing people to capture the full retail price of energy uh, for the energy they're delivering back to the grid. You mean like, was, like, like they have to, like they have to pay. Like so they, they have to pay. Exactly. And <laughs> just, just wanted to make that point for all the uh, net meter harshers out there. You know, like there's a, it, it, I, the idea that if you're a utility, you, you get to charge people for not using your stuff. You know, they used to have names for that activity in New Jersey and it's not, it's, there aren't flattering names. So anyway. <laughs> no, it's a great point. It's a great point. So, uh, but what I thought was really interesting was as I dug into this, you know, uh, I realized that the economic benefits of net metering, which were substantial, were really, uh, were really, you know, to use the old, the old expression, you know, necessary, but not sufficient to really drive the adoption of the technology in these distributed applications. We're talking about, you know, residential households, commercial, commercial rooftops, and so on. Why were why was the economic support not sufficient? Because there were so many other barriers. The principal one, frankly, being that the utilities in general were hostile to the idea for you know some legitimate reasons having to do with their uh, traditional obligation to be the protectors of the grid and their discomfort with the deployment of this new technology that would essentially be you know, delivering energy into what they considered their grid with some reason. Uh, so there were some, you know, legitimate concerns around um, around the performance of the technology or safety of the technology. And when I say legitimate, I mean, there were legitimate concerns, but ultimately unfounded. And if the utilities had spent any time, uh, you know, seriously assessing that, they would have realized those concerns were, were not well-founded. I'm glad you uh, said that, Tom, because I was going to have to have Brian cut you out on that getting all reasonable stuff. You know, we, we, don't, we don't like that here. But I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, Thanks for that qualification. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, but I'll give you a great example, Mike, and this is a, a true story. You know, I, in a period after the California net metering law was passed, but before it was really effectively implemented, I was in a position where I was fielding a lot of phone calls. You know, I was pretty well known in the in the in the industry as it existed at that point. And so when customers who were aware of the net metering, the new net metering law, were approaching their utilities to uh, to take advantage of the new law, uh, the response from the utilities was not necessarily very positive or favorable. And I'm not going to name the utility in this particular case, but it was one of the major, one of the three major investment utilities in California. And I got a call one day from a customer who said essentially this. He said, I contacted my utility. I told them I wanted to install a solar power system on the roof of my home. And their first answer was, you can't do that which made me laugh because actually you've been able to do that legally since, not since the net meeting law had been passed a year or so previously. You've been legally allowed to do that since the passage of, of PURPA, the Public Utilities Regulatory Policies Act in 1978, okay? So this is not a Whoops. new thing. Whoops. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so just the fact that someone on the receiving end of a phone call at the utility uh, was, was not well-informed enough to be able to give their customer the right answer to that question is itself pretty, pretty, uh, pretty telling. But more to the point, 
even when the customer followed up and said, well, there's this new law on the books and, you know, it says that I can do this. The utility sent them a, literally sent the customer an 18 inch high stack of documents, which was the same documents they sent to a, an industrial, uh, in fact, a petroleum refinery that wanted to put in a hundred megawatt cogeneration facility. Okay. So here the PV system is, you know, three kilowatts in those days on the roof of a home. And here's this, and they're sending this customer the same documents they send to that applicant for a hundred megawatt cogen facility. Okay. So basically what they were, this, the message the utility was sending is you're going to need to hire an attorney and a consulting engineer in order to <laughs> fill out the paperwork associated with putting this uh, solar PV system on the roof of your home, okay? So when I talk about regulatory barriers to the adoption of the law, you can see the example I just gave you, that doesn't have anything to do with the economics of solar. It has to do with institutional barriers that are basically there to discourage customers from doing the right thing, which is generating their own electricity from a clean renewable resource that is delivering itself free of charge to the roof of their home. Right. So that's been pretty much the steady course of of my career has been trying to identify, preferably in advance, where those regulatory or institutional barriers lie and taking on the challenge of overcoming those barriers, again, preferably ahead of time. So that by the time the technology is otherwise ready, right, in terms of scaling up and reaching the, the right economic competitiveness thresholds, that you are able to deploy, 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 right, rather than having the technology reach a certain economic threshold and then facing the challenge of overcoming these regulatory barriers. So that's okay, always I, been... I, I, Trying to anticipate where the problems may lie and tackling them um, proactively. That concludes our first of two parts of our interview with Tom Stars. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back to you with the next episode, which will be part two of our Tom Stars interview. <laughs>